recent announcement from the Museum of Modern Art arrived, <clears throat> headed Find Serenity in MoMA's Galleries. As you can imagine, it was gleefully circulated with a host of ironic comments. But even occasional visitors to 53rd Street must have found the pairing of the words serenity and MoMA preposterous. Yet it wasn't that long ago that, as Roger Kimball pointed out, museums were spoken of as temples for art, sanctified public spaces that substituted for cathedrals as, high, as places for high-minded experience and uplift, which is hardly how we conceive of most present-day institutions, especially MoMA, with its jam-packed lobby, crowded galleries, and swarming corridors. Of course, if we think of medieval cathedrals as bustling civic centers with shops built into the base and all kinds of activity within, the comparison might not feel, it seems, so far-fetched. But those of us over a certain age can remember a time when the idea of finding serenity at MoMA would not have seemed bitterly funny. Then the museum did not resemble a busy airport at peak hours. The galleries were never crowded, except for the curved bay with Monet's water lilies, where conveni the conveniently placed bench was always full of worshipers. And just about anyone in the museum was focused on the art, and not, it goes without saying, on cell phone photos. In those admittedly distant days, an art-obsessed teenager like myself could spend an hour after school with Henri Matisse's Red Studio exhilarated by discovering the complex visual relationships among all the disparate objects itemized in the painting. There was also the appealing possibility that that nice-looking boy staring at the piano lesson might say something, uh, but that's another matter, and a long time ago. It's clearly unlikely that Serenity and MoMA are going to find equivalents anytime in the foreseeable future. When Elizabeth Scofidio, one of the architects of the museum's current expansion, offered a defense of why an institution with a department of architecture and design decided to raise the former American Folk Art Museum, designed by Billy Chan and Todd Williams, she said that one of her own aims in conceiving the latest incarnation of MoMA was to establish greater connectivity with the street. That's one of the chief qualities, I imagine, that most of us here look for when we go to museums. Today's bustling galleries are, however, less a result of connectivity with the street than of the way just about all museums make huge efforts to broaden their audience and increase attendance. Given today's steadily rising costs of mounting exhibitions and often diminishing funding, increasing the number of visitors, which can boost public and corporate funding, is obviously necessary. But it's clearly problematic when it becomes a primary motivation. Not long ago, the Phillips Collection in Washington was offered a retrospective of John Graham, the first survey in about four decades of the work of the elusive Russian-born painter, theorist, private dealer, shaman, and expert on African art, a fascinating artist and a key influential figure in the New York art world of the 1930s. Duncan Phillips, founder of the museum, was Graham's first patron until they feuded. So the Phillips owns many of Graham's most important works. The show was declined as not being sufficiently box office. So much for the history of the institution. New visitors and broader audiences, as we all know, are frequently encouraged by attempts to demystify the museum, as we've just been hearing, and or foster the idea of art as entertainment. And we can all list recent exhibitions conceived mainly with that in mind. 
Whether we approve or not, the approach seems justified. A recent poll I learned revealed that 70% of museum visitors go for a social experience, whatever that may be, while only 60% go to look at art. I suppose we should be grateful that it's as much as 60%. But even scholarly efforts designed for the 60%, with interesting theses illustrated by impressive loans, are frequently given subtitles designed to attract casual visitors. Uh, the magic words, I'm told by my curator colleagues, are impressionist, unknown, gold, Van Gogh, or in some circles, klimt, which is more or less the same thing as gold. <laughs> Proof of the effectiveness of those buzzwords comes from the Clark Institute, Williamstown, Massachusetts, this past summer. It featured an extraordinary exhibition titled Splendor, Myth, and Vision, Nudes from the Prado. Well, apparently, even the word nudes didn't do it. The show, which focused on Philip II as Titian's patron and Philip IV as the patron of Peter Paul Rubens, included more than two dozen significant works by Titian, Tintoretto, Rubens, Zuberan, and other masters, including a truly glorious Guercino all but four of which had never before been seen in this country. There was an interesting subtext that examined how paintings of the nude were perceived and exhibited in militantly Catholic Spain from the 16th century almost to the present. But even on weekends, it was possible to savor these, these riches in relative tranquility. In contrast to the mob galleries of the previous years, Van Gogh and Nature, any day of the week. Now, it's true that the Van Gogh show included an admirably large selection of excellent works from distinguished sources, but I don't think that accounted for the crowds. Titles, of course, can be misleading. There was a certain amount of eye-rolling when the Metropolitan Museum announced Impressionism, Fashion, and Modernity, a title which suggested a show clearly designed exclusively to attract visitors. But that exhibition proved to be a thoughtful, satisfying examination of a crucial aspect of the history of modernism, full of important works and important costumes. The other good thing about that work, uh, that exhibition, is that an awful lot of people were focused on the clothing, which allowed anyone interested in the paintings to look at extraordinary group of works that were not usually seen here, quite in uninterrupted. There are obviously a great many exciting, visually and intellectually engaging exhibitions organized every season. There's also justification in complaining about the present culture of the museum world. If pressed, we can willfully ignore the pleasure of such major exhibitions as, say, uh, MoMA's sumptuous survey of Ed, uh, Edgar Degas' monotypes, uh, the Frick's wonderful recent survey of Jean-Antoine Watteau's images of soldiers, and the Met's current brilliant overview of Valentin de Boulogne. We can fulminate instead about jargon-laden wall texts and all the rest of it. Or we can bemoan trimmed down programs and exhibitions reduced in ambition because of financial cutbacks. I don't think there's any positive side to the trendier aspects of present day academic art history. But on a brighter note, there have definitely been good things triggered by austerity. Inventive curators have found fresh ways of doing more with less, making use of permanent collections to avoid the difficult, time-consuming, expensive process of selecting widely dispersed works from private collections and distant museums, and persuading lenders to make paintings and sculptures available. 
and that's not to mention the costs of insuring and shipping the borrowed works and all the rest of it. Unlike my uh, fellow panelists, I'm the one who plays both sides of the street. I work as a curator as well, so this is very close to me. Tightly focused, modest exhibits have often taken the place of blockbusters. The Philadelphia Museum has excelled at this. Uh, Picasso and the avant-garde in Paris drew heavily on the museum's own holdings. The heart of the show was a recreation of the 1912 Salon d'Autun, which introduced Cubism to a massed audience. Now, this witty conceit, complete with a circular poof in the center of the gallery, was made possible because Philadelphia is particularly rich in works by the so-called Salon Cubists who took part in the exhibition, including actual works that were exhibited in uh, 1912, such as these two, uh, the Messenger, which was uh, referred to as the Mona Lisa of Cubism. Uh, Messenger, Glaise, Henri Le Fauconnier, Fernand Leger, and their colleagues in the show were, for the most part, paradoxically conservative vanguardists who aimed, they said, at a more legible version of Cubism. They constructed angular but recognizable images instead of, as Georges Braque and Pablo Picasso did, shoveling fragmented planes derived from perception according to the demands of the painting rather than the logic of anything pre-existing. But Braque and Picasso were not participants in the salon. Their dealer, uh, Daniel-Henri Kahnweiler, forbade them to exhibit, fearing that the broad exposure of the salon would provoke ridicule. As it turned out, he was right. Also at the PMA, Paris Through the Window, Marc Chagall and his circle, was built around the museum's important early Chagall, Half Past Three, The Poet. The show also included a generous selection of designs for the theater and ballet by Chagall's contemporaries and colleagues. Drawn from the museum's own collections, but rarely exhibited, they contextualized Chagall's activity and showed the currency of his own preoccupations. The PMA also showcased Thomas Aikens's masterpiece, portrait of uh, Dr. Samuel D. Gross, known as the Gross Clinic on the right, um, which it jointly owns with the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. The recently conserved and cleaned canvas was the focus of an exhibition among related works, such as the uh, Aikens' The Agnew Clinic, and documentary material about the painting's uh, first exhibition and reception. Another informative exhibit created with minimal effort and expense with works that were either local or from the museum's own collection. The list of small, illuminating, compelling shows organized by county curators over the past years is long and impressive. The Met, the Frick Collection, the National Gallery Washington, DC, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and even much maligned MoMA, but not recently, have all given us convincing proof that less is more. Intensive research has been presented in the form of installations ranging from a single spectacular work of art from the museum's own holdings or elsewhere, to gatherings of a few closely related but otherwise dispersed works, to assemblies of material that create a context for one or more specific works. Among the best examples of the one-work approach was the National Gallery's installation of Titian's dazzling Danae from the Museo di Capodimonte in Naples. The exhibition consisted solely of this ravishing reclining nude as she happily awaits Zeus in the form of a cascade of golden coins descending upon her. 
And absorbing wall text and brochure gave us the interesting history of the paintings commissioned by Cardinal Alessandro Farnese and its transformation by Titian, revealed by technical examination, from an equivocal image of a receptive woman to a more acceptable mythological subject. Uh, Farnese was a churchman, after all, and uh, people were getting tired of their alternate lives. We were also referred to Titian's elsewhere in the museum. Altogether, a very satisfying experience done by bringing in just one painting. Similarly, the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth uh, recently placed Titian's uh, marvelous The Entombment of Christ from the Prado uh, with this cascade of mourning figures, its bold brushy gestures, and its lights pulled up out of darkness among its own old master holdings. Hailed as a distinguished visitor and bathed in the wonderful light diffused by uh, Louis Kahn's ingenious system of vaults, uh, the Titian has probably never looked better. The Met's small shows over the years have been exemplary, Intelli intelligently chosen, revealing examinations of important works from the collection and elsewhere, informed by new scholarship and bolstered by instructive comparisons and the revelations of technical studies. We encounter paintings we've often seen countless times, hung with their usual relatives in the Met's galleries, and soon discover that we pay new close attention to even the most familiar works when they are isolated in these concentrated installations. We consider them freshly and often differently. Paintings presented in this enlightening way have included the exquisite Duccio, with its poignant intimations of the artist's growing attention to the world around him, and its equally poignant evidence of having been the focus of private devotions, those oddly moving marks of candles having been placed too close to the frame by a previous owner down below. Jan van Eyck's crucifixion and last judgment panels and Andrea del Sarto's Borgherini family with the young St. John the Baptist were also treated this way. Um, singled out and enriched by insights derived from technical examination and conservation. We gained new admiration for a vigorously brushed, sketchy, but evocative portrait of a man, now recognized as an autograph work by Diego Velasquez, after the removal of layers of colored varnish allowed it to be identified as a study for the figure in the well-known surrender of Breda. There he is all the way over on the left. Uh, on the right, excuse me. You're facing the other way. Uh, we might have walked by this painting if we came upon it in one of the Met's Spanish galleries. Now we looked hard and we learned something new. The Frick has a distinguished record of miniature shows. Uh, they have celebrated visits from such elegant women as Rafael's La Fonarina and Parmigianino's La Schiava Turca and Antea, along with, for contrast, Van Gogh's portrait of a peasant uh, with, who rejoices in the wonderful name of Patience Escalier. The, these are one, one painting exhibitions. The Frick's own iconic Giovanni Bellini um, and uh, the St. Francis in the Desert and Velasquez's portrait of King Philip IV of Spain also received star billing after technical examination, uh, revealed new things about both the history and the meaning of the two paintings. And the Frick's allegories of wisdom and strength, come on, 
there we go, um, and Vice and Virtue, uh, both by Paolo Veronese, became centerpieces of an informative small show when they were grouped with a pair of nude male allegorical figures painted about the same time with, and with, from the Los Angeles County Museum, along with the Mets, Mars, and Venus, united by love. The combination allowed us to concentrate on how the Venetian master embodied abstract concepts with sensuous figures, a rich play of fictive textures, and seductive paint handling. The Boston MFA has presented equally enlightening mini-shows, one celebrating the achievement of the elite squad of the Italian Carabinieri, the Cultural Heritage Protection Command, dealing with art theft. Uh, Piero Senegalia Madonna, uh, which normally lives in the Palazzo Ducale in Urbino, uh, was stolen and then recovered in 1975. It became the core of a, this exhibition, complete with a film about the squad's successes. Even more fascinating was the eye-testing visiting masterpieces Caravaggio and Connoisseurship. Two of the four exhibited works, uh, The Fortune Teller, from the Musei Capitolini in Rome, and uh, the portrait of uh, Fra Antonio Martelli, the Knight Grand Cross of the Order of Malta, which normally lives in the Palazzo Pitti, were once doubted, but they've now been securely attributed to Caravaggio. The other paintings in the exhibition, which included this possibly early portrait, um, are still the subject of much debate. The exhibition presented arguments both for and against, and the jury is still out. Although the private collector who owns this believes it is a Caravaggio, needless to say. At MoMA some years ago, there was a superb small show that brought together all of Manet, Edouard Manet's attempts to exorcise his admiration for Francisco Goya's The Third of May, 1908 using the reports of the 1867 execution by Mexican rebels of Maximilian I, the European puppet emperor of Mexico, and two of his generals, as the starting point for multiple works made between 1867 and 1869. At the center of the exhibition were all the large and small versions in various media of Manet's Goya-inspired staging of the event, including the one that was cut apart by Manet's widow and then reassembled by Degas, who acquired it. This row of soldiers aiming their guns on one side, the victims on the other, directly inspired by the 3rd of May. Apparently, this was not the way it happened. Um, Maximilian and his generals were in the center of a circle of executioners. Manet's inspiration was documented by published descriptions of the execution, newspaper engravings with different degrees of accuracy, published in France only after an embargo on information was lifted, and clandestinely taken photographs along with a few related works by Manet. All in all, it was an incisive probing of the origins of a group of powerful, obsessive works. Not long afterward, a close, similar close, close scrutiny was accorded Ernst Ludwig Kirchner's paintings of the Berlin street scene made between 1913 and 1915, contextualized by works made just before and after his move to the Louche metropolis. Once again, self-imposed limits allowed us to concentrate on the exhibited works with the dedication they deserved. Such modest exhibitions, whether motiva motivated by economy or intense scholarship, are among the great delights of today's museum practice. Pace, my colleagues. 
Our attention is called to works of art in ways that add greatly to our knowledge and deepen and intensify our experience. We are shown few enough works at a time that we can study them carefully and over long periods. It's the exhibition equivalent of the slow food movement. And there's another benefit as well. Even when lobbies, special shows, and permanent collection galleries are annoyingly crowded, the spaces devoted to mini installations rarely are. It may be that visitors who paid hefty admission prices feel they need to get their money's worth by seeing as much as possible. But whatever the reason, while some casual visitors to micro shows find themselves captured by what they discover, many of them tend to look quickly, glance at the text, and move on. That, of course, allows the rest of us more uninterrupted time. It's a lot like museums used to be. Thank you. <laughs>